Chapter Twelve, Part One of the Book of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. The Book of Cats by Charles Henley Ross. Part One of Chapter Twelve, of Wild Cats, Cat Charming, etc. Without entering into any very lengthened details, I will here make room for a few natural history notes collected from various sources. The cat belongs to the same family as the lion, tiger, panther, leopard, puma, serval, ocelot, and lynx. The tribe is, perhaps, one of the best defined in zoology, all its members having characteristics of structure and habit, not to be confounded with those of other animals. The rounded head and pointed ears, the long, lithe body, covered with fine, silky hair, and often beautifully marked, the silent, stealthy step, occasioned by treading only on the fleshy ball of the foot, the sharp, retractile claws, the large, lustrous eyes, capable, from the expansive power of the pupil, of seeing in the dark, the whiskered lip, the trenchant, carnivorous teeth, and the tongue covered with recurved, horny prickles, are common to all. In their habits and manners of life they are equally akin. They inhabit the forest and the brake, sleeping away the greater parts of their time, and only visiting the glade and open plain when pressed by hunger. They are for the most part nocturnal in their habits, being guided to their prey by their peculiar power of vision, by their scent, and by their hearing which is superior to that of most other animals. Naturally they are strictly carnivorous, not hunting down their prey by a protracted chase like the wolf and dog, but by lying in wait, or by moving stealthily with their supple joints and cushioned feet till within spring of their victims, on which they dart with a growl, as if the muscular effort of the moment were painful even to themselves. Whether the attack be that of a tiger on a buffalo, or that of a cat on a helpless mouse, the mode of action is the same. A bound with the whole body from the distance of many yards, a violent strike with the forefoot, a clutch with the claws, which are thrust from their sheaths, and a half-tearing, half-sucking motion of the jaws, as if the animal gloated in ecstasy over the blood of its victim. This mode of life has gained for these animals the common epithets of cruel, savage, and bloodthirsty, and has caused them to be looked upon by the uninformed as monsters in creation. When its natural instincts shall die out, then also will the tiger cease to exist, and were the whole world peopled and cultivated equally with our own island, the feline family would be limited to a single genus, namely the humble cat. But as things are at present constituted, the valleys and plains of the tropics are clothed with an extensive vegetation, supporting numerous herbivorous animals, which could only be kept within the due limits by the existence of carnivora, such as the lion, tiger, leopard, and panther. The distribution of the feline animals is governed by those conditions to which we have alluded, and thus the puma inhabits the North American prairie, the jaguar the savannas of South America, the lion the arid plains of Africa and Asia, the tiger and panther the tropical jungles of the Old World. The minor species, as the ocelot and lynx, have a wider range in both worlds, while the domestic cat associates with man in almost every region. With the exception of the latter, none of the other genera have been tamed or domesticated, so they are strictly wild beasts, against which man wages a ceaseless war of extirpation. It is true that in the East one species of leopard is trained for hunting, but 
this only very sparingly, and even then he does not follow the game by scent, but is carried by the hunters, and only let loose when he is within a few bounds of the animal. It must not be inferred, however, that they are untamable, for every creature is capable, more or less, of being trained by man, provided it receives due attention. And we have sufficient evidence in the wonderful feats performed by the lions and tigers of Mr. Carter and Van Amberg that the feline are by no means destitute of intelligent docility. The truth is, there is no inducement to tame them, and thus the cat, the most diminutive of the family, and the only one of direct utility to civilize, is likely to continue, as it ever has been, the sole domesticated member. The wild cat is more plentiful in the wooded districts of Germany, Prussia, and Hungary than in any other part of Europe. It is found also in the north of Asia and in Nepal. Besides the true wild cat, there are other species of Felis which, on account of their resemblance to the tiger, are called tiger cats. They are found in all parts of the world, with the exception of Europe. The largest of this family is the Rimaudahan, an inhabitant of Sumatra. When full-grown, it measures over seven feet from nose to the tip of its tail, which appendage, however, monopolizes three foot six of the whole. It is nearly two feet high at the shoulders. Its color is light gray, striped and spotted with jet black. One of the first specimens of this tiger-cat seen in England was brought here by Sir Stamford Raffles, who procured two of them from the banks of the Benkulin River. Both specimens, writes this gentleman, while in a state of confinement, were remarkable for good temper and playfulness. No domestic kitten could be more so. They were always courting intercourse with persons passing by, and in the expression of their countenance, which was always open and smiling, showed the greatest delight when noticed, throwing themselves on their backs, and delighting in being tickled and rubbed. On board the ship there was a small dog who used to play round the cage and with the animals, and it was amusing to observe the playfulness and tenderness with which the latter came in contact with their inferior-sized companion. When fed with a fowl that died, they seized the prey, and after sucking the head and tearing it a little, amused themselves for hours throwing it about and jumping after it, in the manner that a cat plays with a mouse before it is quite dead. This species of cat never seems to look on man or children as his prey, and the natives assert that when wild it lives chiefly on poultry, birds, and small deer. The color of the wild cat is more uniform than that of the domestic species. On a ground color of pale reddish-yellow are dark streaks extending over the body and limbs, forming pretty much the sort of pattern exhibited on the tiger's robe. From the back of the neck to the spine a line of very dark spots extends to the tail, which is short and bushy, and has a black tip. The feet and insides of the legs are yellowish-gray. In the female, which is smaller than the male, the colors are not as distinct. The medium size of a full-grown male wildcat is as follows. Length of head and body, one foot ten inches. Length of head, three and a half inches. Length of ears, two and one-eighth inches. Length of tail, eleven inches. The wildcat affects rocky and densely wooden districts, living in holes or in hollow trees. According to Mr. St. John, a wild cat will sometimes take up its residence at no great distance from a house, and entering the hen-houses and outbuildings, carry off fowls, or even lambs, in the most audacious manner. Like other vermin, the wild cat haunts the shores of lakes and rivers, and it is thus, therefore, easy to know where to lay a trap for it. Having caught and killed one of the colony, the rest of them are sure to be taken, if the body of their slain relative be left in some place not far from their usual hunting-ground, and surrounded with traps, 
as every wildcat which passes within a considerable distance of the place will to a certainty come to it. America has several tiger-cats, foremost amongst which may be mentioned the ocelot. Two of these animals were kept at the Tower of London, at the time when that ancient fortress counted a menagerie among its other attractions, and of one of these Mr. Bennet gives the following description. Body when full-grown, nearly three feet in length. Tail rather more than one foot. Medium height about eighteen inches. Ground color of fur gray mingled with a slight tinge of fawn, elegantly marked with numerous longitudinal bands. The dorsal one, continuous and entirely black. The lateral, six or seven on each side, consisting for the most part of a series of elongated spots with black margins, sometimes completely distinct, sometimes running together. The center of each spot is a deeper fawn than the ground color external to it. This deeper tinge is also conspicuous on the head and neck, and on the outside of the limbs, all of which parts are irregularly marked with full black lines and spots of various sizes. From the top of the head between the ears there pass backwards toward the shoulder two or more, frequently four, uninterrupted diverging bands, which enclose a narrow fawn-color space, with a black margin. Between these there is a single longitudinal, somewhat interrupted, narrow black line, occupying the center of the neck above. Ears short and rounded, externally margined with black, surrounding a large central whitish spot. Under parts of the body whitish, spotted with black, and the tail, which is of the same ground color as the body, also covered with black spots. This animal is a native of Mexico and Paraguay. Its home is the gloomiest depths of the forest, where all day long it lies quiet, but as night advances comes out to prey on birds and small quadrupeds. It is said to be a particularly cunning creature, and sometimes when other stratagems to replenish his larder have failed, to stretch himself all along the bough of a tree and sham death. The monkeys of the neighborhood have no greater enemy than the ocelot, therefore it is only natural that when they find him dead they would be much rejoiced, and call together their friends and relations to see the pretty sight. The treacherous ocelot is, however, meanwhile, keeping sharp watch through a tiny chink of his eyelids, and when the rejoicing is at its highest, he jumps, and before the monkey revelers can recover from their fright, at least a couple will feel the fatal weight of his paw. There are several ocelots, the painted, the grey, and the common among others. In captivity few animals are more surly and spiteful until they grow thoroughly well acquainted with their keepers, or others who court their notice. There is, however, one weapon keener than the sharpest sword, more potent than the Armstrong gun, more powerful than all the gunpowder and bullets ever made, and yet so simple, that the boy yet in pinafores may direct it. To this weapon the suspicious tiger-cat succumbs, and the name of this weapon is kindness. So armed the Reverend J. G. Wood conquered a body of ocelots exhibited at the menagerie. He says, several of these animals, when I first made their acquaintance, were rather crabbed in disposition, snarled at the sound of a strange step, growled angrily at my approach, and behaved altogether in a very unusual manner, in spite of many amicable overtures. After a while I discovered that these creatures were continually and vainly attempting the capture of certain flies which buzzed about the cage. So I captured a few large blue-bottle flies, and poked them through a small aperture in the cage, so that the ocelot's paw might not be able to reach my hand. At first the ocelots declined to make any advance in return for the gift, but they soon became bolder, and at last freely took the flies as fast as they were caught. The ice was now broken and in a very short time we were excellent friends. 
the angry snarl being exchanged for a complacent, composed demeanour. The climax to their change of character was reached by giving them a few leaves of grass, for which they were, as I thought they would be, more anxious than for the flies. They tore the green blades out of my hand, and enjoyed the unaccustomed dainty undisturbed. After this they were quite at their ease, and came to the front of the cage whenever I passed. The Colo-Colo is another tiger-cat. It is an inhabitant of Guiana, and though not more than a third the size of the Rimao Dahan, it is a most formidable enemy to the smaller animals of the forests which it inhabits. It is related by Mr. Wood that a specimen of this creature was shot on the banks of a river in Guiana by an officer of rifles who stuffed it and placed the skin to dry on the awning of his boat. As the vessel dropped down the river, it passed under overhanging boughs of large trees, on which rested numerous monkeys. Generally, when a boat passed along a river, the monkeys, which inhabit the trees that border its banks, displayed great curiosity, and ran along the boughs so as to obtain a closer view of the strange visitant. Before the Colo-Colo had been killed, the passage of the boat had been attended, as usual, by the inquisitive monkeys. But when the stuffed skin was exhibited on the awning, the monkeys were horribly alarmed, and instead of approaching the vessel as they had done before, trooped off with prodigious yells of terror and rage. From this universal fear which the sight of the animal occasioned to the monkey, it may be conjectured that the Colo-Colo is in the habit of procuring its food at the expense of the monkey tribes. Of the tiger-cat in Africa, the serval may be taken as the type. It is about two feet long, exclusive of the tail, which measures nine inches, and is a foot in height at the shoulders. Its upper parts are clear yellow, and its under parts white. Its entire body is spotted with black. Among the Dutch settlers it is known as bashkat, or bushcat. It is an inoffensive creature, not easily irritated, and behaving generally like our own familiar grimalkin. The wild cat of Ireland would seem to be quite as savage a fellow as his Scotch cousin. In Maxwell's Wild Sports of the West is a story of one of these animals which was killed after a severe battle. It was of a dirty grey colour, double the size of the common house cat, and with formidable teeth and claws. It was a female, and was tracked to its burrow under a rock, and caught with a rabbit net. So flimsy an affair, however, was scorned by the fierce brute, which speedily rent a hole with its teeth and claws. It was about to run off when the lad who had set the snare seized it by the neck. It was finally dispatched by a blow of an iron spade. The lad, however, was so terribly wounded as to necessitate his removal to a hospital, where he for some time remained in peril of lockjaw. The following narrative is furnished by Mr. St. John. Once, when grouse shooting, I came suddenly in the rough and rocky part of the ground upon a family of two old and three half-grown wildcats. In the hanging birch wood that bordered some of the highland streams and rocks, the wildcat is still not uncommon, and I have heard their wild and unearthly cries echo afar in the quiet night as they answer and call to each other. I do not know a more harsh and unpleasant cry than the cry of the wild cat, or one more likely to be the origin of superstitious fears in the mind of an ignorant highlander. These animals have great skill in finding their prey, and the damage they do to the game must be very great owing to the quantity of food which they require. When caught in a trap, they fly without hesitation at any person who approaches them, not waiting to be assailed. I have heard many stories of their attacking and severely wounding a man when their retreat has been cut off. Indeed, a wild cat once flew at me in a most determined manner. 
I was fishing in a river in Sutherlandshire, and in passing from one pool to another had to climb over some rocky and broken ground. In doing so I sank through some rotten moss and heather up to my knees, almost upon a wild cat who was concealed under it. I was quite as much startled as the animal herself could be when I saw the wild-looking beast rush out so unexpectedly from between my legs, with every hair on her body standing on end, making her look twice as large as she really was. I had three small sky-terriers with me, who immediately gave chase and pursued her till she took refuge in a corner of a rock, where, perched in a kind of recess, out of reach of her enemies, she stood with her hair bristled out and spitting and growling like a common cat. Having no weapon with me, I laid down my rod, cut a good-sized stick, and proceeded to dislodge her. As soon as I came within six or seven feet of the place, she sprang right at my face, over the dog's heads. Had I not struck her in mid-air as she leaped at me, I should probably have got some severe wound. As it was, she fell with her back half-broken among the dogs, who with my assistance dispatched her. I never saw an animal fight so desperately, or one so difficult to kill. If a tame cat has nine lives, a wild cat must have a dozen. That a long course of domestic drill is insufficient to win a cat from its native savagery is proved by the following scrap, lately culled from the Swansea Herald. A fight of more than ordinary interest took place on the bank of the canal near Kildwelly Quay a few days ago. A domestic cat, making her usual walk in search of prey along the embankment, was attacked by an otter of no small dimensions, and was in an instant tossed into the middle of the canal, and there had to fight, not for the belt, but for her life, in an uncongenial element. But very soon they were observed by some sailors and shippers, employed not far from the scene of contest, who hastened to witness the strange occurrence. Either from fear of the men or its formidable antagonist, the otter relinquished its hold, and poor Puss safely landed, amidst hearty cheers and congratulations. But Puss, not being content with the laurels she had won in the first contest, went out again on the following day, and, strange to say, the old combatants met again, and the otter, with undiminished pluck, attacked the cat on land. The contest became very severe, but ultimately the otter was glad to regain its watery refuge, and leave Puss the victor the second time, without suffering very considerably from an encounter with such a formidable foe. A writer on the subject of wild cats says, When a domesticated creature is no longer found in the wild state anywhere, like the camel and the llama, or when a reasonable skepticism may be entertained respecting the species assumed to be its savage ancestor, as is the case with the dog and the fowl, the steps of all our reasonings march straight into a blind alley, from which there is no issue except by turning back. I believe that there never was such an animal as a really wild pussy. The supposition involves an absurdity. Whose legs could she rub in a state of nature? On whose arrival could she set up her back and arch her tail, and daintily tread on the same little spot? From what carpet, Kidderminster or Brussels, could she gently pull the threads with her claws? In what dairy could she skim the cream? From what larder could she steal cold roast pheasant? And if she did not do these things— or some of them, would she be a genuine puss? No, no, I believe that Adam and Eve had a nice little tortoise-shell to purr between them as they sat chatting on a sunny bank, and that a choice pair of tabbies slumbered with half-shut eyes and their feet turned under them before the fire which was the centre of Noah's family circle on board the ark. Apropos of cat-charming or cat-taming, here are two anecdotes from Mr. Beaton's book. 
I have, said the writer, a vivid recollection of once charming a cat to within an inch of getting myself thoroughly well thrashed. There lived in our neighbourhood a kind-hearted old gentleman who was good enough to take a fancy to my ungrateful self, and would frequently invite me, he was a bachelor, to dine with him. The dining part of the business I had not the least objection to, but after dinner, when we had chatted till he fell into a doze, it became, to a boy nine years old, rather tedious. It was on one such occasion that I behaved so disgracefully. The old gentleman was nodding, with his slippered feet crossed lazily before the fire, and a fat tortoise-shell cat, his property, laying along the rug, placidly asleep, too. Had I been a good boy, I should have sat still and turned the leaves of Fox's Book of Martyrs till my friend awoke. But I was not a good boy. I felt myself like a martyr doomed to the dreadful torture of sitting still. I felt in my pocket for a top spring I had there, and for a minute or so amused myself by bobbing the button at the end of the string, on the nose of the tortoise-shell cat, till I had aroused that lazy animal to a state of extreme irritability. This sport, after a while, grew tame, so I shifted the string and allowed it to dangle within an inch of my host's feet. Really, it was done with scarce a thought, but the result was rather astonishing. The cat, who all the time kept her eyes on the tormenting string, no sooner saw it at a distance convenient to spring at than she made a bound, and, missing the cord, fiercely embraced one of the slippered members with ten of her talons. For the moment I was too frightened to weigh the possible consequences of laughing, and laughed outright, which, with the sudden bound the old gentleman gave, so alarmed the tortoise-shell cat that she flew toward the door like a mad cat. I doubt, however, whether its utmost agility would have saved it from the tongs with which its outraged master pursued it, had I not ashamedly explained the matter and begged forgiveness. I have certainly in my time made the acquaintance of some queerish cats, when quite a little boy there was attached to our house a quaint black-and-white cat, whose sole recommendation was that he was a magnificent mouser. Nay, to such lengths he would carry his passion for hunting as regularly to haunt a ditch that existed in the neighbourhood for the purpose of pursuing and capturing water-rats, which class of vermin he dispatched in a manner at once secured the death of the rat, and himself immunity from the rat's teeth. Seizing the animal by the back of the neck, the cat, by a sudden wriggle threw himself on his back, and at once transferred the custody of the rat from his mouth to his forepaws, holding it neatly behind the shoulders, while with his hind talons he cruelly assailed the unlucky animal's loins and ribs, till it ceased to struggle. I have stated that the cat in question was attached to our house, and that certainly was the extent of his intimacy, for he was attached to nobody residing there. Myself he particularly disliked, and although he never considered it beneath his dignity to steal any article of food from me, would never accept my overtures of friendship. I have reason to believe that this special dislike to me arose out of a pair of boots possessed by me in that period. They were creaking boots, and fastened with laces. Whether it was that their loud creaking as I moved about the room in them reminded him of the squeak of rats, or whether, not being a particularly tidy boy, the before-mentioned laces were sometimes allowed to trail rat's tail-wise, aggravatingly heightened the illusion, I can't say. I only know that as sure as I happened to allow my small feet to swing loosely while seated at breakfast or dinner, so surely would the black-and-white cat, if he were in the room, make a sudden dash at the hated boots, giving my leg a severe wrench in his endeavour to fling himself on his back, for the purpose of tearing the life out of them 
after his own peculiar mode. My enemy was, however, finally subdued, and in a rather curious way. Someone brought me one of those difficult musical instruments known as a mouth-organ, and delighted with my new possession I was torturing it as I sat on a seat in the garden. Suddenly there appeared in a tree just above my head my foe, the black-and-white cat, with his tail waving from side to side, his eyes staring, and his mouth twitching in an odd sort of way. I must confess that I was rather alarmed, and in my nervous condition I might be excused if I construed the expression of the cat's countenance to intimate, Here you are, then, with another hideous noise, a noise that is even more suggestive of rat-squeaking than your abominable boots. However, I've caught you by yourself this time, so look out for your eyes. I did not, however, cease playing my organ. My enemy's green eyes seemed to fascinate me, and my tremulous breath continued to wail on the organ-pipes. Slowly the black-and-white cat descended the tree, and presently leaped at my feet with a bound that thrilled through me and expelled a scream-like note from my instrument. But to my astonishment my enemy did not attack me. On the contrary, he approached the offending boots humbly, and caressed them with his head. Still I continued to play, and after every inch of my bluchers had received homage from the cat's hitherto terrible muzzle, he sprang on the seat beside me, and purred, and gently mewed, and finally crept onto my shoulders and lovingly smelt at the mouth-organ as I played it. From that day hostilities ceased between us. He would sit on my shoulders for half an hour together and sing, after his fashion, while I played, and I had only to strike up to lure him from any part of the premises where he might happen to be. There used to come to our house a young man who played the trombone, and having heard the story insisted that there was nothing in it, that all cats like music, and that savage as was our cat to strangers, he would be bound to conquer him with a single blast of his favorite instrument. Next time he came armed with the terrible-looking trombone, which our cat no sooner saw than, as I had predicted, for I knew his nature better than anyone else could, he took a violent dislike to it. A blast on the trombone, the effect was, as he prognosticated, instantaneous, though not perfectly satisfactory. The brazen note was immediately responded to by one equally loud from our cat, who appeared to regard it as a challenge to combat, and thickened his tail and bared his teeth accordingly at the same time, swearing and spitting dreadfully. I need not say that the trombone player was discomfited, while my fame as a cat charmer was considerably augmented. Poor pussy, her character is not often properly understood. As we read elsewhere, one or two common errors about cats may be noticed. Many persons will destroy them when anything is the matter with them, whereas in many cases they would recover with a little care. Some think they do not drink much, which is a mistake. Water should always be placed within their reach. As to their want of attachment, there is no doubt that is generally owing to the neglect, if not worse treatment, they often experience. Every animal will ordinarily return kindness for kindness, and if persons will only try, they will not find cats an exception. But to knock an animal about, or hardly ever to notice it, and to punish severely any fault it may commit, are not ways to attach it to you. The writer has heard of more than one instance in which, on its master's death, a favorite cat has gone away, and not been seen again. There is a great diversity of character in cats, as indeed in all animals. As to the color, this is not of such importance as the shape. She should be well-rounded, compactly formed, with small ears and fur of fine texture. It sometimes happens that ordinary-looking cats have some very good qualities. 
Cats are very much afraid of each other. Two of them will often look at one another over a plate for a long time, neither venturing to move or to take anything. At other times they are great bullies. One will get close up to another and scream into his ear until the other gradually shrinks back and runs off when he's got clear. The Chinese, it seems, says another writer, learn the hour of the day by looking into the eyes of their cats. But I imagine that if cats could speak Chinese, they would tell us not only what o'clock it is, but also what is the day of the week. When a boy, I was a great pigeon-keeper. Pigeon-keeping in a town leads to excursions on roofs. Excursions over roofs led sometimes to neck-breaking, sometimes to strange discoveries. Our neighbor at the back was a large coach-builder, and the nearest buildings were his forges. On weekdays I beheld, during my airy rambles, nothing but the blacksmiths hammering away at bolt and spring and tire and nail. But on Sundays, except in case of inclement weather, the warm tiles that covered the forges were tenanted by numerous parties of cats. There they sat all day long, admiring one another, holding silent deliberations, determining in their minds which partner they should select for the evening's concert and ball. While daylight lasted it was a Quaker's meeting, silent and sober, but after dark, the darker the better, leaps and friskings were audible, with vocal effects of long swelling notes, such as called forth in Peter Pender's Ode to the Jewish Cats of Israel Mendez, whose opening line is, Singers of Israel, O ye singers sweet! End of chapter 12, part 1